Welcome back to The Ancient World, a podcast with discussions and presentations of Greek myths and philosophy, symbolic readings of the biblical stories, and the renewal and rebirth of the ancient treasures in the Florentine Renaissance. And today we're going to talk about two books. We're going to talk about Dionysius and his divine names more briefly, just a couple of examples from that book. And then we're going to talk about uh, another book called Aristotle, East and West from David Bradshaw which is a contemporary book which which looks at the whole patristic era and, and all the way up inc- to including Aquinas and um, Palamas and then some thoughts about the differences between the Eastern and Western tradition within the Christian uh, theology and, and experience. And it, that also ties into both Dionysius and, and uh, Gregory of Nyssa that we talked about earlier. So we're going to have a couple of examples first from Divine Names. This is a book from Dionysius, which is, um, he's going through all sorts of different concepts or different names for the divine, like good and beauty and and, uh, light and power. And you have many kind of things that will correspond to the the angelical beings, like the heavenly, heavenly spheres. So we're going to pick out two, and then um, an overall point for Dionysius is that no matter how you conceptualize this, the true divine is way beyond it. So we, we, we're kind of grasping at it. We're trying to make some, some uh, ways of conceptualizing, and it could be helpful, but we have to remember that it is only that. It's not the, the real thing. So here's just an example of how he talks about light. So, the good then above every light is called spiritual light, a frontal ray, a stream of light welling over, shining upon every mind above, around, and in the world from its fullness and renewing their mental powers, and embracing them all by its overshadowing and being above all by its exaltation, and in one word by embracing and having previously and preeminently the whole sovereignty of the light-dispensing faculty as being source of light and above all light, and by comprehending in itself all things intellectual and all things rational and making them one all together. So this is just an example of the style from Dionysius. And uh, it's very uh, kind of energetic and uh, enthusiastic in a sense. <laughs> and uh, it's... Um, inspiring in a way that it kind of it, it's he uh, it talks about the ecstasy as well so it's kind of some of the language is kind of driving you towards this very intense experience of it uh, and then again you have the reminder that this is a way of you to experience it and conceptualizing it but it's not close to the real the, the real divinity uh, so that's one of the like example of the positives and then he has one he has 20 pages very interesting pages about how he looks upon evil. And it's not what you might expect because he, he, as an overall theme, he thinks of evil as the lack of good, meaning the lack of, of good as quality, more than kind of uh, morally good, but it's, it's like the corruption or decay or that which is lacking the full quality in the substance of things is where the evil comes from. 
So the evil is not a thing in itself in the way Dionysus is, is presenting it. So he, he starts with, uh, in chapter 4, he starts with, um, with saying how, uh, asking the questions. So what is, an, uh, what is, in short, what is evil? From what source does this spring? In, in which of things existing is it? And so on. And then he keeps going saying, the evil is not from the good, and if it is from the good, it is not evil. And he, he gives many examples of this. And then he also says that, uh, so for if the evil is an imperfect good, then by the entire absence of the good, both the imperfect and the perfect good will be absent. The evil is then, this is his conclusion, the evil is then not an actual thing which is uh, a very interesting way of looking at it. You might hear other people quoting from this and talking about the like the evil and the good is not too it's not like a movie with a kind of the hero and the and the and the villain <laughs> fighting each other. It's more like when you have the lack of the good, then you get what would be the source of this like decay and and corruption. So, I just want to read one more quote when he talks about when he, and he has the same conclusion. So this is section 34 of chapter 4. The evil then is not an actual thing, nor is the evil in things existing. For the evil, as evil or qua evil, is nowhere. And the fact that evil comes into being is not in consequence of power, but by reason of weakness. And a bit further down, and in so far as they do not aspire to be good, they aspire to be non-existent. And this is not aspiration, but a missing of true aspiration. So that's um, some thoughts about about uh, the lack of the good in the divine names from Dionysius. And then we're going to move to the next book, which is, um, we spent a couple of weeks on this. It's a really, really good book. It's called Aristotle East and West by David Bradshaw. And we're going to pick out just a couple of points here. So one of the overall things is that when, when the, when the, early church splits into into the Greek and the Latin in the, for the most part one of the main main differences that will emerge is how they look at your experience of what is divine and the and the kind of the crux of it in some sense is like if you think of it as something you can conceptualize or not you just have to experience it like, like an immediate experience, or if you can try to grasp it conceptually. And then the Greek church founders are very much against this conceptualization. Uh, so we have here, uh, this, is, this is development from like Gregory of Nyssa, the Cappadocians, and then Dionysius, further to Maximus, the confessor. And they build the same kind of uh, body of, of, of thought that is addressing this issue. So in the book here, this is uh, on page 191, uh, Bradshaw then says, uh, in effect, Maximus has adopted a portion of the Cappadocians terminology and extended it in a way inspired by Dionysius. So there's, a, there's another like bonus of this. If you start this journey into the patristic era and the church founders, you might go through the same steps. If you start with this wonder after looking at the Greek philosophy and the biblical stories and wondering how you can kind of 
<laughs> make sense of them together or in, in which since they have different sources at the root it feels like two separate different sources how can you build something that is uh, overlapping or blended or in which way can you make some efforts of synthesis of this and if you start thinking like that you are at, at the same place where the church earliest church founders were in the first and the second century and then gradually was building century by century so if you dive into Gregory of Nyssa and Dionysius, then you can read, for example, Maximus the Confessor and understand it. And then furthermore, you can end up with Aquinas in the, the 1200s and you see what he is doing, like all the books and, and, the, and the thinking that he can build on. So he says now, uh, near the end of the divine names that we mentioned at the beginning here, he observes that all of the divine names must be both affirmed and denied. The, the way of negation is superior because it stands the soul outside of what is congenital to it. Meaning, as Dionysius describes the light, and then he says, but the divine is not that. And then he describes the good and the beauty and many other things, and he says, but it's not that. As a way of negating and thus grasping it better. So it keeps going. Uh, the movement outside becomes the dominant theme of uh, Dionysius' short treatise, The Mystical Theology, which is uh, nine pages. Their negation is so much a conceptual act, is not so much a conceptual act as a way of leading the soul beyond concepts into the darkness where the divine dwells. And now comes another connection to St. Gregory. Dionysius presents this movement allegorically as the ascent of Moses up Mount Sinai. First, Moses must submit to purification and separate himself from all who are not purified. Then, pressing ahead to the summit, he finds that even the holiest and highest of things that are seen or thought are merely suppositional accounts of the things that are below the transcendent one. Finally, he breaks free from them and plunges into the darkness of unknowing. This is Nyssa talks about then the third stage is seeing the divine in the darkness. First is the light, then it's the cloud, then you get into the darkness. And you see it in the unknown because you, you're, like, you're starting to know it a little bit better and therefore you can also start sensing it in, in the things in the darkness, in the, kind of the, the mysteries that you can't grasp. So uh, in the unknowing, the darkness, where he is supremely united with the holy unknown by an inactivity of all knowledge and knows beyond the mind by knowing nothing. And further, Maximus excludes conceptual knowledge from the final union with the divine just as firmly as does Dionysius. His emphasis, however, is less upon the way of negotiation than on the direct experience and perception of the divine. So this also goes into other topics we've had on, we have on this podcast, which is... <laughs> Also, how you use your brain when you when you approach things. So, if you if you use more rational side or more your your uh, emotional, intuitive, and where the, the mystery lies, you will have different ways of experiencing the things you are trying to approach. So, there's also another great link here. Of well, first, also he says that this about stepping back from your knowledge and back from your concepts 
He's making a link here to uh, St. Paul and the uh, Corinthians, where in chapter 13, verse 8, where it says, Charity never fails, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Which can then be seen as the same thing that that your, your conceptual grasp of the knowledge is, again, back to this idolatry theme in, in the Old Testament, in the old stories. Uh, this is also where you have the, the quote, it's a bit on the side, but <laughs> for now we see through a glass darkly. But then, face to face, now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. So, to the point of, of to which degree you should conceptualize things in trying to understand the mystery and the spiritual world or experience of realm and the divine. But the next connection is here with when he talks about uh, the experience Maximus envisions is not a direct perception of the divine essence, but a participation in the things around God. And he also says that uh, he describes this as an ever-moving stability, a state of participation in the divine energia that transcends any form of conceptual knowledge. And here, it's also a little reminder and connection to the paradise of Dante and the ending, like sort of the conclusion of Dante's journey into the divine and the spiritual. So uh, for those of you who have listened to this before, so <laughs> it ends with um, when he, he looks straight into the source of the light and he tries to understand, but he can't, he can't grasp it. He says that it's like uh, he wants to, uh, to square, uses the thing to square a circle, but he cannot discover the principle involved. And he says, but my own wings could not take me so high. Then a great flash of understanding struck my mind and suddenly its wish was granted. At this point, power failed high fantasy, but like a wheel in perfect balance turning, I felt my will and my desire impelled by the love that moves the sun and the other stars. And the feeling of reading this, especially if you've gone through the whole journey, is this kind of dissolving in your mind and your experience. You're just being dissolved into the universe and you kind of go outside the rational. You go just into the pure feeling and then the emotion and then the love, which is then described as the highest uh, highest emotion, the highest angelical beings, and kind of that which is closest to the divine. Okay, so, and we have one more uh, connection to, to, to Gregory of Nyssa, which is the story with the sandals. We mentioned this earlier. So, he says here that uh, you can see the sandals as a symbol, like when he wants to uh, ascend the, um, the mountain of, of divine knowledge. Uh, for, uh, so this is from page 195. Uh, that He goes on to explain that to dwell with God constantly and without intermediary, uh, intermediary requires a mind that is free of thoughts colored by passion. Like so many other, uh, Evagrius takes Moses as his model. If Moses, when he attempted to draw near the burning bush, was prohibited until he should remove the shoes from his feet. How should you not free yourself of every thought that is colored by passion? 
So this is another thinker, uh, Evagrius. He argues the familiar Neoplatonic premise that God is beyond conceptual thought. But this is just another way of looking at this story. When, like, why, why is it a requirement if you want to ascend the spiritual mountain of divine knowledge that you have to take off your sandals? This is one way of, of trying to interpret it. Okay, and then last little thought for today is the ending of this book, which again is highly recommended. And that is the consequences of this way of thinking, how conceptual you should be. Like Aquinas is very, like he's, he's applying the whole Aristotelian structure, logic as a framework to understand things or how much like more Eastern, where it's, you should get rid of your conceptual thought and you should just experience and being in the emotion and deeper into the mystery and the spiritual feeling. So, uh, and this is like a, just a little commentary on the recent centuries also, like where we are at this moment in in the kind of <laughs> both uh, the development of history, but also the back and forth of some some themes throughout history. So Bradshaw in his book then concludes in the last or suggests in the last paragraph that um, he, this goes into the Old Testament idolatry again. So he says, let us now ask whether the, the, uh, the God who has been the subject of so much strife and contention throughout Western history was ever anything more than an idol. And then he also goes on to say that we might find that contrary to what some people are thinking, that the sun still rises, the horizon still stretches before us, and we have not yet managed to drink up the sea. Which is a beautiful way of ending the book, and it's also kind of a, an, a, an a positive note that there might be something about rebalancing things. This is we've been through, <laughs> talked about this so many times over over a year, both because of that is what the Renaissance is doing; it's balancing different things, but then having a blend or a mix of the harmony between both the more rational and conceptual and the more uh, intuitive, immediate, emotional experience of the world. And also that that last part, also through imagination, can be a much bigger source of beauty and wisdom and, and quality of life than many people would think today. And, and uh, there can be like a huge trove of treasures to be discovered and to enjoy okay so we're going to stop it there and uh, hope some of this was interesting this is a vast field of knowledge and thinking so we, we're working our way through it and uh, just want to take <laughs> you with us on the journey and hoping this is maybe a bit inspiring or uh, could be some food for thought and as always thank you so much for listening and hope to see you again soon here on the ancient world podcast you know how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator 
Facebook guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.